no way I can dance to that, but it seemed to sum up everything that I wanted to say better than I could say it, and really I could sit down and they've kind of said it. So <laughs> that was it, really. Um, so uh, the questions that I was given this morning, I don't know quite what I've done to deserve this. But anyway, the questions that I was given to discuss this morning is, is belief in God dangerous? And, but what about fundamentalism? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Turn to the black eyed peas. Um, so I'm actually going to start because start with a different question entirely, I think. Um, I'm going to refer to lots of different Bible passages. Most of them are going to be up on here, but it's not the best screen in the world. So if you want a Bible, we do have some at the back. And if you wave a hand, somebody might give you one. They might not. Um, so I can't even see it. Um, like I said, it's not the best screen. So the question that I'm going to start with um, is, is Christianity dangerous? And wait for the whizzy PowerPoint. And try them. That's as whizzy as it gets this morning. I'd quite like to be able to see my notes, but <laughs> I know it's not great. <laughs> Give us a chance. <laughs> Okay, so, <laughs> all right, so Christianity, um, it should be dangerous. Um, it should, or it's likely to, change the way that you view things. It should challenge your priorities. It should make you different to the society around you. Jesus was arrested and tried and killed partly for political reasons, because what he said was believed to be dangerous. He was a danger to the Jewish leadership, particularly as Israel at the time was occupied by Rome. Then his early disciples, they were threatened, they were arrested, they were killed. Disciples around the world today face the same sorts of trials. Um, they were accused of turning the world upside down, and they were definitely definitely perceived as dangerous, particularly to those in power. Now, I want to sort of turn and look at just one facet of why Christianity might be perceived to be dangerous, and then I am going to move on and look at what I was supposed to be talking about. Um, so, um, the one facet that I want to look at is the idea of Jubilee. Now, I have a National Trust card, which I love, and I like. It's, it's my ultimate badge of I am middle-aged, middle-class. I have accepted this. I also, because we live locally, have a Blenheim uh, Palace card this year, um, and we've been to various things up there. And I love visiting these places. They're fantastic. Um, but they do make me very cross, particularly Blenheim Palace. I fail to see why, because some bloke did something 350 years ago. Somebody who's got absolutely nothing to do with that gets to live in a palace. And it really, really annoys me. I work in education. The department that I work in is very, very concerned about social justice. Um, and one of the things that bothers me is that not only do we have entrenched wealth in this country that leads to families owning castles and palaces for hundreds, if not thousands of years, thousand years, we also have entrenched poverty so that you can see generation after generation after generation in families where the situation doesn't change. And if you look back through family trees, you can see very similar sorts of financial circumstances in families, either good or not so good. 
Now, is that what God intended and is that what he intended for his people? And the Bible would suggest that no, it wasn't. In the Old Testament, Israel were this land, they were a nation, they were a people and they were supposed to be different and they were supposed to be different from the nations around them. One of the ways that they were supposed to be different was in this idea of jubilee. And what happened was, well, it didn't. What was supposed to happen was every 49 or 50 years, it's not entirely clear which, um, everything got redistributed, land got redistributed, and your land was not just a place to live, it was a means of earning a living. So if you got really poor, you got really in debt, you had to sell your land and possibly yourself as well into slavery. That sounds like an utter disaster. But the plan was that every 50 years there was a reset button and everything went back to the way it was before. So you couldn't get entrenched wealth and you couldn't get entrenched poverty because every 50 years there was a reset. So you couldn't have generational uh, wealth and generational poverty. You could make yourself wealthy in your generation and then that was reset every 50 years. There's no actual evidence that it ever actually happened and that anybody did what they were supposed to do. And it's probably not that surprising. But Jesus, at the start of his ministry, announced, this is the year of the Lord's favour, which was an announcement of Jubilee. It was absolutely good news to the, for the poor. Definitely good news. They would have a fresh start generational poverty would be wiped out. Now, it didn't play out quite how they envisaged or anticipated, but the early disciples practiced a version of this at the beginning of Acts. It tells us that they sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as they had need. There was a redistribution of wealth, which was dangerous. It was dangerous to their family's wealth. It was dangerous particularly to those in power. Now, the practice seems to have died out in the early church remarkably quickly, um, even in the time that the New Testament was written. There were letters written to people who owned slaves, so they certainly hadn't sold everything that they owned and given it to the poor. Um, but it seems to be the right idea that they had. When the rich young ruler came to see Jesus, um, Jesus said, yep, he could follow him, but he had to sell everything that he had and give the proceeds to the poor. When the young man said, oh no, I don't actually think I'm going to do that, um, Jesus said it was harder for the rich to come to him than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. But he did add that everything is possible with God. Now, I've heard an awful lot of sermons about that preached over the years, and the vast majority of them are about why we don't have to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, but the early disciples certainly seem to have taken him at his word. It was the year of the Lord's favour. It was good news for the poor. Most of us are not that poor, so it's slightly less good news for the rest of us. It's dangerous. Um, it's dangerous to take it seriously. I'm also aware that's not actually the question that I was asked to answer. So... <laughs> Uh, let's, let's get back to it. Um, is belief in God dangerous? Yeah. Yes, it can be. And I got asked, but what about fundamentalism? So I thought we'd start with, well, what the heck is fundamentalism? 
So I turned to the well-known source of uh, authority, the Oxford English Dictionary, the big one, not the one that fits in a book, but the big one. Um, and this one says that um, fundamentalism is strict adherence to doctrines and practices held to be fundamental to Christianity, specifically belief in the inerrancy of scripture and literal interpretation of the creeds as fundamentals of Protestant Christianity. It was a movement based on such beliefs arising among Protestant denominations in the United States and which rose to prominence in the 20s. It's contrasted with liberalism and modernism and sometimes has negative connotations of intolerance or inflexibility. Welcome to my sermon. <laughs> um, now, the OED very helpfully gives some quotes so that we can put in context this word and see what it means. So they give the, the Times from 1950s that says, Now, fundamentalism appears to describe the bigoted rejection of all biblical criticism a mechanical view of inspiration, and an excessively literalist interpretation of scripture. The scientific American, slightly more recently, has this. Neo-evangelicals such as Billy Graham accept the basic tenets of conservative Protestantism, but reject the extreme anti-intellectualism and sectarianism of fundamentalism, which I include as a demonstration that if you try really hard, you can fit a lot of isms into a sentence. <laughs> so, we also have... In other religions, especially Islam, strict adherence to traditional orthodox religious beliefs or doctrines, a tendency or movement associated with this. And depending on who you are and where you're from, you'll view fundamentalism in one of a number of ways, either extreme indifference. Um, in my head, when I hear fundamentalism, I tend to think um, Christian fundamentalism, mainly associated with the United States, when Phil hears the word fundamentalism, he tends to think Muslim fundamentalism. Don't think it particularly matters. Um, so what is fundamentalism? As a working definition, I'm going to use the strict adherence to doctrines and practices held to be fundamental to Christianity, often intolerant and inflexible, anti-intellectual and anti-scholarship. So I'm taking that from the OED. But the first bit sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Like We should adhere strictly to doctrines and practices associated and fundamental to Christianity, should we not? To some extent, yeah, it's true. But most dangerous doctrines have an element of truth to them, and that's what makes them dangerous. So, why is it dangerous? Well, it often leads to violence, particularly when fundamentalism of any kind is... Um, combined with intolerance and inflexibility. And I was listening to um, the radio and they had uh, the rabbi Jonathan Sachs was debating um, political fundamentalism. And actually that's another source of fundamentalism which is equally harmful and leads to the same sorts of problems. Um, so often leads to violence, particularly when associated with this intolerance. Now I have been told on several occasions that some other religions are dangerous and violent, but not Christianity. I've been told no one gets killed in the name of Christianity, which I'm afraid is very bluntly nonsense. Um, the smallest grasp of church history or British history will show that Christianity can get as violent as any other religion. Crusades, 
uh, founding fathers of the US. I drive past Martyr's Monument on my way to work in Oxford um, often. Uh, the sectarian problems in Northern Ireland. Fundamentalism of any religion also often leads to misogyny, the silencing of women and violence against women in particular. And again, Christianity is just as prone to this as any other religion. I've personally been on the receiving end of my fair share of attempts to silence me, and I've been told, while leading various things, that God would only ever use a woman as second best, and only if he can't find a man to do the job. It's nice. It's not true. It's nonsense. I mean, it does get wearing if you hear it repeatedly. Um, we've come a long way in this country in terms of equality for women. The situation used to be an awful lot worse. But I think the church should be leading this um, uh, society in matters like this rather than following on behind. Um, listening to the output of some groups, you could get the impression that God hates um, fill in the blank, what it is this week. Um, that to stay in God's good books, you'd better do what he tells you or else. Um, that your relationship with God is very firmly based on your good behavior to please him. So it would now be really tempting to preach on those awful people over there who are intolerant and inflexible and wring our hands wondering about what to do about them um, and how they bring Christianity or even believing in God at all into disrepute. We could have a lovely time talking about them um, who've got it all wrong and what shall we do about them. But the whole time that I have been planning this, I've been very conscious of a parable that Jesus told, which is a parable which I really like. And it's actually more of a joke than a parable. Um, it's very short and to the point, and it is the speck and the plank. And Jesus said this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own. You hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's from Matthew 7. So I would like to spend time pointing out all the specks in them over there, but we might trip over or I might trip over the planks in my own. Um, the Bible is always far more concerned about us and our response and what are we going to do than it is us thinking about people over there and what they should do. So Paul last week started his sermon with Michael Jackson's Bad. And if I had to pick a song from Michael Jackson, I'm glad I didn't, but if I had to, <laughs> to sum up what I want to say, uh, I would pick uh, Man in the Mirror. So if you want to work the, make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make the change. So I'm going to move on now um, with some thoughts about how we can respond to those around us with different beliefs from our own. Go on, louder. Turn her up. Thank you. Okay. So... For the rest of the time, we're going to talk about avoiding the fundamentalist trap or how not to be a crashing symbol. 
Uh, and I have three points. The first one I'm going to spend far more time on, if you think I'm going on a bit. Uh, where is the love? And then we'll look at humility and searching the scriptures. So, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he was writing to a church that was terrible. I mean, it was in an appalling mess. There were all sorts of atrocious things going on in this church. And Paul writes to them, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. I'm a nasty noise that you don't want to listen to. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, see it does link to where we started, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So keeping the rules and the doctrines and the practices of Christianity without love results in a nasty noise. And nasty noises put people off and shut them out. Now, I was listening to Matt Dolan preach a few weeks ago with a sense of mounting annoyance, if I'm honest. I was trying to work out why, given that he had been given a very different sermon title to me. He was using all the references that I had tentatively thought about using myself. And if you have never preached, trust me, that's annoying. Um, and the reason why was that he was asked to talk about called to obey... And he decided, rightly in my view, that the answer was that no, we are not. So that thinking we're called to obey and therefore placing a high priority on conforming and on the doctrines and practices of Christianity leads to legalism, which can very quickly lead to fundamentalism, although the two may well be the same thing. So the idea that how someone looks and conforms outward appearances um, is what is important. How do you know someone is a Christian? Is it because they tell you? Because they keep certain laws and regulations? Because they wear a cross around their neck? The early disciples were Jews, and the Jews were distinct because of what they wore, because of their food laws, because they had various covenants that made them different externally. And Jesus said that none of those things are what he wants to mark out his disciples. What's to mark them out, what's to be distinct, is the way that they love each other. And he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So why do they love one another? And Jesus specifically tells us that it's to follow his example. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Peter tells us, love covers over a multitude of sins. I always thought this wasn't just a New Testament thought, but it's there in the old one as well. Um, love covers over all wrongs. And Peter is talking about relationships within the church and acknowledging that they can be tricky. Um, so whether we agree with people's theology or not, whether we agree with their behavior or not, we are to love them. And John tells us that anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. This loving business isn't optional. It might be tough, 
but it is the hallmark and it is to be the hallmark of those who are part of God's family. But that can easily become another command and another something that you have to do, um, another sort of belief type structure that marks you out. But how can we love the way that we're called to in the Bible and how can we do it without it becoming sort of some command we're expected to keep? And the clue is in what we had before. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, that you are absolutely loved and you are absolutely forgiven. That's the hallmark of God's family. You are included in his family because he loves you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. 1 John again tells us that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, we need to get this message heard. So many people think that they can't come to God because of what they have done, both people outside the church and those inside the church including, I think, the children and the young people. And I think that all too often we perhaps inadvertently give them the impression that being a follower of Jesus is about behaving yourself. And I think particularly as teens start to spread their wings, their mistakes inevitably get more significant. It certainly did when I was a teenager. I can't imagine it's changed that much. Um, so it needs to have been a clear message for years that they are loved by God no matter what or they will think that they can't be a Christian when they realize that they're making so many mistakes. Now, Paul, who said of himself, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, tells us that I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't rate my powers or strength particularly highly, but I'm pretty sure that nor anything else in all creation and neither the present nor the future pretty much covers me and anything I might do. So no one else can cause me to be separated from God's love, but I can't cause myself to be separated from it either. I might not always feel like I'm loved or particularly lovable, but the word of God is very clear that nothing can separate me or you from the love of God. The other points I'm going to make today are shorter and they are not as important as this one. So if you take nothing else from today, take this, that God's love for you and your relationship with him are based on what Jesus did on the cross. It is not, it never has been, it never will be based on what you have done or not done. And the Bible is clear. God does hate sin, but he loves the sinner, and that is genuinely good news. So, second point is in humility. Now, when I was a teenager, one of the um, youth leaders in our church had this sort of picture or vision type thing that she reckoned was what was going to happen at the end of time. And she said at the end of time, um, Jesus would be there and there would be myriad Christians from all different Christian backgrounds there, and some of them would inevitably be quite surprised to see each other. Um, and, 
And Jesus would be standing there, and to this group, he would say, oh, look, you got this right, and this right, and this right, but oh my goodness, you got that wrong. What were you thinking? You don't read your Bible. And to this group over here, he'd say, well, you got that bit right, but you got this and this and this wrong. And the important thing with that is that everybody'd got something right, and everybody had got something wrong. Um, and I found this a very useful picture to bear in mind, particularly as I've gone out and spent time uh, with Christians from other denominations. My working assumption of myself is that I am usually right. <laughs> Not always, because that would be annoying, but usually. Um, and so it's a pretty useful picture to bear in mind. And the Bible tells us that with humility comes wisdom, and in humility, value others above yourselves. We will all get some things wrong, and it's worth bearing that in mind. It can help keep us from getting too dogmatic and too bogged down in things which are often of secondary importance. That doesn't mean that we need to accept and believe that any, anything that anyone says, particularly if they're standing at the front with a microphone on. You need to be very careful of such people. Uh, John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he says, Many will turn away from the faith, and Jesus said, Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. In other words, there will be false teaching, and disciples, that's us, need to watch out for it that they're not deceived. The Bible suggests a number of ways you can be on guard against false teaching. John goes on to talk about that those who love are from God because God is love. So someone who doesn't exude love is not from him. It doesn't mean to say that anything which is difficult to hear is not from God. That's slightly different. And Jesus here clearly links hate with deception. But not all false teaching is spread by people who are trying to lead others astray. Some is by people who are misguided themselves. And we also just need to guard against that. And the Bible tells us how. I'm not going to read all of this, but Paul and his companions go to Thessalonica. And um, there, they go to the temple because that's what they do. Paul preaches because that's what he does. And when he preaches, loads of people come to know him. Fantastic. Hallelujah. Thessalonians, you're great. You listened, you heard, you followed God. Then, as tended to happen wherever Paul was, there were some problems, and he has to be hustled out of Thessalonica at night um, and gets parceled off to Berea. And this is the bit I want. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they were not condemned for checking Paul out as to whether what he said was correct. They were commended for it. Being in the word of God and open to it is one of the best guards that we have against false teaching. Um, and there we go. Okay, so that's how we avoid it. So our response then, and to conclude, is belief in God dangerous? 
Yes, it can be. It can lead people to do all manner of things we would rather that they didn't. But what is our response? Because the Bible holds us accountable, not for what other people are doing. The Bible holds us responsible for what we do, in some circumstances, what our children do, and if you're a church leader, what your church does. I'm not. So um, the Bible gives us three different groups of people um, and our response to those. So we can think about how we need to respond to people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church and in the wider church. We can think about how we respond to people who are our enemies, and that might be people who we consider trying to do us harm. So that might be people who are fundamentalist, um, trying to blow us up. Um, it might be people who we think are bringing Christianity into disrepute, and we're horrified by their teaching. Um, and then there's our neighbours, and that's broadly and roughly everybody else. Um, and so the Bible tells us quite distinctly how to respond to these three groups of people. So you can, when you're trying to decide how do I respond to somebody, decide which category you put them in. So to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're told, love one another as I have loved you. For our neighbours, ten times in the Bible, which tells you if nothing else it's quite important, we're told, love your neighbour as yourself. And that's in the Old Testament, where apparently God isn't a God of love, um, as well as in the New. And to your enemies, we're told, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that kind of fits in with actually our hallmark is supposed to be that we love one another. That's the hallmark of how we are to respond, how we are to deal with people. We don't need to worry about God's reputation or what other people might say and do or the Ill, bad reputation that he might get from what other people say. Our job is to go and love those who are easy to love and to go and love those for whom it's much more challenging. And that is to be what marks us out and what sets us apart. Um, and because we cannot do that unless we know we are loved, we're going to finish by singing Amazing Grace. Thank you, Lizzie. <laughs>